Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The scripture today is taken from Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 48. And when he has said these things, he went on ahead, going up to the Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. He sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he has he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread his cloak their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already, on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were, were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, you know on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will, will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in one, in, on, on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of, of, their, of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ City. You can say good morning. 
Good morning. It's good to see all of you again. Uh, again welcome here. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you, I'd love to meet you after the gathering. If you'd like to meet me, uh, my name is Brant, one of the pastors here. Um, but it's my joy this morning to welcome you into our time of, of looking at the scriptures, at the preached word, uh, to, to understand and to grow, to know who Jesus is as the king who has come to save us. But before we do that, let's go to him in prayer because we need to have him help us as we open up the word to learn from it and to grow as we see what's written there for us. So would you pray with me? God, we come to you now and uh, again, we just confess our need. Uh, we are like children. We are, in fact, your children as we put our trust in you. And, and we come to you um, hungry to learn, hungry to grow, hungry to, to find out about life, what life might be like as a follower of Jesus, how we might grow into the life that you have for us, Jesus, as, as your followers. God, would you exalt Jesus for us in this text that we'd see him as a king who's worth following, a king who is humble and compassionate and holy, one who is worthy of our adoration and our worship and our very lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this day, today, <clears throat> is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday in the, the church calendar is the first day of Holy Week. And Holy Week is time uh, that we step back from our typical preaching series here at Christ City Church to focus in on the key events of the Christian faith, the key events around Jesus' life as he now, in his earthly ministry, uh, purposes to go to Jerusalem and then be betrayed in Jerusalem and go to the cross and to die. It's really a time when we celebrate the, the central truth and the, the famous Bible verse that we all probably have heard before from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this week we're just remembering the truth surrounding the work of Jesus and his cross. And we begin by remembering today Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Later on this week, as David announced, uh, we'll continue this remembrance by our time at John Oliver High School, remembering Jesus as a crucified Savior who died for our sins on the cross. And then on Sunday, it's going to be awesome. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together with the new life that he's actually doing in our church at Christ City Church. We're going to watch 13 baptism testimonies uh, across the three churches. We can praise God. Praise God. Praise God. We're going to celebrate that Jesus is raised, that he is reigning, and that he's still bringing life. We're going to go down to Kids Beach at 2 p.m. Uh, that same Sunday, we're going to have baptisms. So 2 p.m. Sunday, on Easter Sunday, at Kids Beach, on the south end of Kids Beach, we'll be there. All three churches will be gathered, and we will go into that freezing cold water. But you don't have to if you're just a guest. You can just watch us do it, and you can pray for us so we don't get hypothermia. Uh, and we will have our baptisms there. So so come to those things. Um Come to this week, in fact, uh, even right now in this moment, ready to learn more about Jesus. Come hungry to know who he is as Savior. Christ City, I know lives are busy and lives are full. There's tons of distractions, but there's nothing more important for you and for your life than knowing this Jesus. And this week is such an awesome opportunity for you to dig down deep, in relationship with him, to, to seek him, to come to know him as a savior that he is. And this morning, 
as we look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, I want to encourage you to let him confront you. Let him confront you and challenge you with who he is as king. It's a little bit early still to be talking about the language of confrontation. Maybe you're not enough coffees in uh, for this conversation. But it's very important that we realize the triumphal entry is a confrontation. The text we just read is a, a confrontation because Jesus enters Jerusalem intentionally and deliberately, not just as a prophet, not just as some Galilean teacher, but as the king, the king of kings who is claiming authority to all. And if Jesus is king, here's a secret. You can't be. If Jesus is king, you can't be. For him to be on his throne is a challenge to our thrones. I don't know if you've realized, but thrones don't usually come in two-seater versions. Right? It's like a one-seater throne. And for him to be exalted and enthroned as the king, you've got to get off of it. There's a challenge here. He, he challenges our autonomy and our self-determination and invites us to submit to him. So the question, I think, in this text for us and for today is what will we do with Jesus as king? Will we reject him like the crowds eventually did later on in this story? Will we receive his judgment or will we welcome him in his humility and his compassion and his holiness that we see in the text that we just read? And with that question in mind, I, I want you to see this morning in this passage the way that Luke shows us that you should receive Jesus. That he is a king who is worthy of you to submit before and to follow and to worship because he is a king who brings life. He is a king who is different. He is a king who is exalted in his humility and his compassion and in his holiness. And those are going to be our three points this morning. We're going to look at Jesus' humility, Jesus' compassion, and Jesus' holiness. And why those things our reason for us to fall on our knees before him and to receive him as our king. So look at our first point with me. Jesus is a humble king in verses 28 to 38. I'm going to read them again. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where you are entering will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. In the text that we read this morning uh, in our call to worship, we read uh, the prophecies about Jesus being this humble king coming and riding on a donkey. And here there's uh, some language that we're talking about, the colt or the donkey, but the idea is Jesus coming on this, this, this small, humble animal and entering into Jerusalem on the colt, on the foal of the beast of burden. And the first thing that stands out to me in this passage is why does Luke talk so much about this animal? Why does he spend five verses essentially talking about the donkey that the king whose promise is going to come on? 
Maybe you've wondered the same thing in your own life. Maybe you've wondered as you've looked at this text. Well, the donkey is significant because it represents the arrival of a humble king who would deliver Israel from oppression and bring them into flourishing life. Let me explain. First of all, for the people of Israel who are immersed in the stories of the Bible, Jesus' entrance on a colt, his entrance on this young animal, this donkey, would recall the entrance of another king into Israel, the son of David, the king who was Solomon. And in 1 Kings 1 verse 33, when Solomon became king, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's significant because looking back on Israel's history, the time when there was the most economic prosperity in their whole history, the time when there was the most equity and justice and blessing on the nation, it was under the reign of Solomon. See, Solomon's reign, it resulted in flourishing life for his subjects. There's an allusion here to a time historically of great prosperity under a different king in Israel's history. I was riding my bike um, this week past uh, Van Dusen Garden. My commute goes past Van Dusen Garden. And um, I, I saw this sign outside of Van Dusen and I thought, finally, a, a illustration for flourishing life. I've been missing one of those in my, my preaching repertoire. And um, the reason I, I thought that was because I saw the sign outside of Van Dusen. It says, Van Dusen Gardens, um, where life flourishes. Van Dusen Garden, where life flourishes. I thought, that's perfect. What an awesome illustration of flourishing life Van Dusen Gardens is. Because it's a cultivated garden. Van Dusen is a place where the gardeners are hard at work, helping to establish growth and the flourishing of all this flora and fauna and plant life that we'd see and just pay money even to go and watch the flourishing life and to witness it and to see it. And see, for the people of Israel, a king on a donkey signaled flourishing life. It signaled that this king who is coming, Jesus entering Jerusalem, he was like a gardener that would carefully arrange the conditions for life to flourish under his reign. But there's more that this donkey signifies. Second, the donkey also signaled that this king would deliver them from oppression. You see, after Solomon and the history of Israel, uh, there was the collapse of Israel. There was judgment of Israel because of their sin. There was exile. And then in this time of exile and oppression under the hands of enemies, uh, the prophets prophesied that a time was coming when a Messiah, a, a Savior, a King would come who would deliver them from oppression under the hands of their enemies. And one of those prophets, we've actually read this morning already in Zechariah verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, uh, he prophesied about this salvation from enemies. And in 9 verse 9, he wrote this of his text in the uh, first half of the Bible. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. And in context, that's Salvation from enemies. Salvation from the hand of the oppressor. Righteous in having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Is that interesting? This donkey signals that Jesus 
is not just a king who brings flourishing, but Jesus is a king who delivers from oppression. As we'll see in a second, that's very important for this moment in time in Jesus' life and for the history of Israel when he lived. But third, there's one more thing I want you to see about this donkey. And something that Zechariah highlights in this prophecy. See, the donkey represents humility. See, a donkey is significant because of what it isn't. A donkey isn't a war horse. A donkey isn't an exalted animal that the conquering warrior in their pride and their glory rides in, signaling all their majesty and glory. For a king to ride a donkey into his city is to divest himself of authority and glory and power. It's to signal to all his subjects his intention that he is a merciful king. A humble king. A king who is bringing peace. Behold, your king is coming to you, writes Zechariah. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And there's something really important for us to see here. I don't know what you think humility is. But see in this text and and know that true humility divests itself of the right to personal glory. In the interest of serving others. See, Jesus, in his humility, he divests himself of the glory that was his, that was rightfully his, in order to to come forward as a servant, in love to care for and to serve his people and to bring salvation. Because Jesus, don't forget the Bible teaches, isn't just an earthly Messiah king. Jesus is God incarnate. So Jesus is is God in his infinite glory who has already emptied himself of that glory and taken on human flesh, become a human being. To become a savior king, but then not a king who rides in on a war horse in his glory, conquering, but a king who shows his humility by getting on a donkey. Come not to trample his enemies, but to save them. Come in love to save and to serve his people. And when Jesus approached Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, on this donkey, the people understood. They got all these things that I've been talking about. They understood the flourishing life, the freedom from oppression, and the significance of his humility. And in response, they rejoiced at his arrival. Look at verses 36 to 38. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. According from Psalm 118, this psalm that, that celebrates and rejoices in the arrival of the delivering king, the one who frees them and brings them into flourishing life, the one who has come to save. As I was looking at this text, my, my mind was drawn to um, some movies that I've seen and some stories that I've heard. Because I am a, I'm Dutch, as you guys know, many of you know. And growing up, I heard 
endless stories about the Dutch, the Dutch emancipation from the Nazis and the way that, that the Allied forces came in and they were celebrating, celebrating all over the streets in Holland as, uh, as they celebrated that they were delivered from their oppressors. Just rejoicing in celebration. Maybe you've seen some movies uh, depicting those scenes. But I think this is what was going on. The crowds are rejoicing in Jesus in that same kind of way because these crowds lived daily life as an oppressed people under Rome's thumb. And in fact, in their recent history, they've been impressed by the Seleucid Empire before that, and they had famous uh, fighters against that dynasty, like Judas Maccabees, who was this priest's son who came and tried to deliver the people. And before that, they were enslaved to the Persians. And before that, Assyria. This is hundreds of years of history of oppression and not having freedom from enemies. And then here is Jesus signaling in that context the arrival of a delivering king. And yet, despite his humility and the salvation he offered, when we keep reading in verses 39 to 40, we see that that there's something foreshadowed here. And the foreshadowing isn't the acceptance of Jesus as king, but actually his further rejection as king. Look at the text with me. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them for shouting out from Psalm 118 these songs of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Stop that. And Jesus answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, the Pharisees did not recognize Jesus as king. They didn't recognize him at all. They hated Jesus. They were the leaders of the ones that wanted to to persecute and to even kill Jesus. But even the Pharisees' rejection here is just a foreshadowing of a greater rejection. Because the irony of this passage is that the crowds themselves who praised Jesus and welcomed him when he first came in humility on Palm Sunday would reject him when he continued on his path of humility to Good Friday. And when he died on the cross as the Savior, come to save us from our sins. See, even the crowds rejected Jesus for the humility they first admired. And the problem was that they thought their great enemy was Rome. And they didn't see that their greatest enemy was lurking in their own hearts. I think today we try to avoid the conclusion that people do bad things because they're bad. We try to avoid the conclusion that people do bad things because they're bad. Like, no, 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 no. Everybody's a good person. Then you have to ask, but then how come all all this stuff in this world is going on the way that it's going? And one thing that we do is we try to excuse what we've done and the, the bad things in this world. We say, no, this doesn't come from inside of us. It comes from outside of us. Like just, you know, all these people that have done bad things, really it's because of the bad things that were done to them a long time ago. And that's why they do bad things now, right? And so we just kind of kick the ball down the road a little bit. But you see, we still have the same problem, right? We still do the bad things, right? It's out of us, these actions that that are destructive in this world that they still come from. 
And even if we do, in fact, do bad things because we once upon a time have been sinned against, it doesn't excuse us from the way that then we continue that sin in our own lives. It's interesting, when you look at the history of the world, it's clear wherever humans go, we tend to bring the bad stuff inside of us wherever we go. Right? We bring with us hatred and murder and jealousies and oppression, slaveries to the desires within us that produce the bad things that we see in this world. I mean, just tell me, for example, what, what other species on earth is there like us as human beings that is so destructive to itself? What, do you see that in the, the animal kingdom, a, a, a whole species tearing itself apart the way that human beings do? See, our problem, it's not out there. Our problem is what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's our rebellion against God and, and the pollution, distortion of the desires that take place within us that produce the bad actions. So the problem at the heart of the human problem is, is the problem of the human heart, as has often been said. And like a good doctor, Jesus doesn't look at a cancerous skin legion and apply a band-aid. He goes much deeper. See, Jesus came to heal us at the root of our problems. He came to deal with our sin once and for all so that we would be both forgiven and reconciled in relationship to have life in relationship with the Holy God, but also to deal with the the sin that's within us to heal us and to stop that, that wickedness that's coming from deep in ourselves and in our being so that we as sinful human beings could be redeemed and made new. But for that to happen, Jesus had to be more than a political leader. Jesus had to be a crucified savior. But it was his humility to become not just God become human, not just God become a king on a donkey, but God become the servant of all to die for all. It was that humility that led to the crowds rejecting him. Because they didn't have a category for a crucified Savior. And yet, Christ City, what I want to wrestle with with you is this. Isn't it, though, this exact humility that proves for us that Jesus is the king we need? Who else as a leader or king is like Jesus? How many times have we seen leaders promise different victories and salvations in this world, in our lives, in our cities, but it's their own arrogance and pride that gets them into trouble, their own self-interestedness that that pollutes what they're doing and causes us to reject them time after time. What about even in our own lives? We want to follow our own leadership too, but it's our pride that gets us into trouble. It's our arrogance that keeps us from turning to the things that we truly need, the salvation that we need. And yet look at Jesus. He's a leader who is humble. A king who loves his people completely. A king who died with this sign, the king of the Jews written over his head as he hung on that cross. 
And no more fitting epithet could be given because by his humble death, King Jesus saved us from our sin. But even as Jesus is rejected, we see something profound there. Because how Jesus responds to his rejection, it only further highlights how worthy he is to be the king of our lives. Because Jesus is compassionate towards those who reject him. Look at our second point. Jesus is a compassionate king in verses 41 to 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. See, in this text, what we see is that as Jesus comes further down the Mount of Olives, making his way closer and closer to the city, he comes to a place where he, he looks over Jerusalem. He sees it laid out beneath him. And he weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over Jerusalem in his compassion and mercy for Jerusalem. This city that, that would reject him. See, for them, Jesus longed that they would know the salvation that he offered, the life that he'd come to bring instead of the suffering that was coming for them. The words that that Jesus speaks here about the days that will come, they're they're speaking about the day that that after Jerusalem rejected the Messiah, um, there would be a rebellion against Rome. See, the the intention of this Jewish people was to keep persisting and looking for a political deliverer. We need to have a political deliverer. So they, they fought for political salvation. They fought against Rome. And in 70 AD, Rome's armies under General Titus, uh, General Titus would wipe out Jerusalem and they'd wipe out the temple. And then three years later, Uh, At the impenetrable fortress, or nearly impenetrable fortress, Masada, uh, the armies would come and they would wipe out the remainder of the rebellious Jewish people fighting for their political salvation. And Jesus knows this. And that's why he weeps, because he knows that in her blind desire for political deliverance, Jerusalem missed the day when God himself had entered through her gates to save her from her sins. Now, I think the reality is that so often in life, we're just like Jerusalem. We're just like Jerusalem. And the thing that we desperately want in the moment is exactly the thing that keeps us from the life that we need. And that's true for us when we open the fridge, Right? Uh, I know that very, very well. Some of you guys know my story. Uh, Open the fridge to get the thing that I want in the moment that brings tremendous suffering later. We're like that in other areas in our life too, aren't we? We're like it in the way that, that we blindly pursue our lusts or our greed, our selfishness, our, our bitterness, our envy and our slander and our anger. 
And we think we just have to act on those things. We have to pursue those things. That will lead to my life. But it's the very fact of holding on to those things that keeps us from the life that God desires for us in submission to Jesus as our King and as our Savior. These are soul-destroying, life-destroying things that we, we bring into our lives. The problem is that all of our desires inside of us are disordered and broken and hungry for the wrong thing. But there's good news for us, and it's good news I don't want you to miss in this text because we see in this passage that Jesus is a compassionate king. A king who even after we've rejected him for the whole of our lives, or even just this morning, whatever it might be, instead turning to our idols and our false comforts and wanting false saviors that will deliver us, he still has compassion for you. He longs for you to know the life that he has to offer. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. Christ City, your Savior prays that over you. He weeps over you, longing for you to come to know what he offers. Who is like King Jesus? What kind of king is there in this world that has compassion on his enemies who reject him? What leader weeps over the suffering of his enemies instead of jumping for joy at their downfall? You see, Jesus is king, and he is judge, and he does have ultimate authority. But in the words of C.S. Lewis, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. Submit to Jesus. Submit to this king. If you've ever thought that he won't welcome you because of the way that you've rejected him, you're wrong. If you've ever for one minute in your life thought he won't receive me because I've persisted in my sin too much. Even now I'm fighting him. You're wrong. He desires nothing more than that you'd come to him to learn his life, to know the life that he offers, the salvation that he freely gives. Won't you come to him, maybe today for the first time, to receive the salvation that he offers that is good and brings you into life that is true and real and deep. All you need to do is turn to him and accept his salvation, a salvation he is qualified to offer because he is a holy king, a king who purifies us from our sin. Look at verses 45 to 46 in our last point. Jesus is a holy king. Luke writes, and he entered the temple. So just know the flow. He's, you know, the first portion we read was Mount of Olives coming down, looking at Jerusalem in the distance. The second we looked at was Jesus is now looking over the city, drawing nearer. And now here he's in the city. He's going to the very heart of the holy city, Jerusalem, and he enters the temple. But he does something surprising. He enters the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. 
but you have made it a den of robbers. See, Jesus enters Jerusalem and enters into the temple itself as a holy king to purify this temple, his temple of its sin. See, God's intention was that this temple would be a place of worship for everybody, for all nations, that that in the court of the Gentiles, outer court in this temple, that all the nations could come and learn who God was to receive his mercy and his forgiveness and his compassion. But the, the Jewish leaders at the time were so corrupt that they had twisted this temple and filled it with sin and polluted it through their greed and through their prejudice against others. And they said, that's fine, <laughs> but we're not going to use the courts for that. We're going to use it as a place, uh, a market to make money, to profit off of God's own generosity and love to others for ourselves. Jesus comes to his temple and he sees that. And in his righteous indignation, he is furious. And he enters into this place of worship and he begins to purify it. To drive out the sin and the wickedness that's there. The stories in the other gospel accounts, they go into more detail about this. And they're just so surprising. If you only have a view of Jesus as Jesus meek and mild, Jesus tenderly weeping somewhere over the children, you have the wrong picture of Jesus. Here we have a story of Jesus in his justice and righteousness as a holy king who will not tolerate sin for forever. And in those other gospel stories, we have this picture of Jesus and, he, and he's carefully finding some cords to braid together. And you have to think of the incarnate God, Jesus King, making a whip braid by braid, knowing exactly what he needs to do. And then entering into the the temple. And as a previous carpenter and a traveler with the strength that he has, flipping over tables and driving out this wickedness that is happening in the temple of a holy God. The temple was stained and polluted with sin, so Jesus purifies it. But Jesus cleansing the temple is only a small foreshadowing of a greater purifying work that he came for. See, Christ said, sin is this thing that pollutes and defiles us in this world. It takes the holy, beautiful creation that God has made. A good and holy God created us in the world we live in and said, it is good. But then sin gets in here and it wrecks and it destroys and it twists and it perverts and it corrupts the goodness of what God has made. And the stain and pollution of sin in our own lives, it separates us from life in relationship with a holy God because a sinful creature like you and I, we cannot be in the presence of a perfectly holy God and live. And in scripture, we see examples of this. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, in the first half of the Bible, Isaiah, when he stood before God, he says this. This is Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah now talking, who's seen all of this, sees the, the holiness of God and the throne room of God, and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. He just knows that there's no way that he can exist any longer because he sees who he is in his sin against the presence of a holy God. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm a sinner, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm just from the midst of a sinful people. How can I be here in the presence of God? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's afraid for his life. What this shows us is that to stand before God in his holiness is to stand before God who is perfect and good and wise and just in infinite more orders of magnitude above us. It's like standing in a dark room in front of a light with the power of 10,000 suns. Suddenly someone flips that switch and the light just blasts through you exposing and laying bare even the motivations inside your heart, rendering you entirely naked before the eyes of a perfect and just God. And in that moment, you stop arguing with God. You stop arguing with God about the justifications we make for our sin. You put your hand to your mouth you fall before him with the perfect realization that God would be right to purify this world of me. But Christ City, there's so much good news in this account of Jesus entering the temple. Because the gospel stories show us that Jesus is a holy king who's come who doesn't want to destroy sinners. He loves sinners. And in John 3.17, we know the words which say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's come as a Savior to purify us of our sin rather than have us perish before his justice and his holiness. What he wants to do, and what he came to do, is to make you holy, to sanctify you. So holy, making holy means to to be sanctified, set apart, made holy, to belong to Jesus forever. No longer separated from him because of your sin, but reconciled to belong to him forever. Purified, blameless, washed clean. And that's why this passage is so gloriously good. Because when we see a veiled hint of the holiness of God and his judgment and Jesus' purification of the temple, we know that Jesus has come to build a new temple. One not built with stones, but built with human beings who've been washed of their sin by his blood. What can wash away your sin, Christ City? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
What can purify the stream of your dead, polluted heart so that instead of hatred and greed and lust and envy and slander, it pours forth desires of obedience and love and joy and relationship with God? Nothing can do that but the blood of Jesus. See, in the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit writes, Verse 26 of chapter 9, but as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin with a sacrifice of himself. And Hebrews 10, 14 says, for by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ City, Jesus loves you. And he came not just to judge an old temple, but to build a new one, purified, holy, and blameless. And you, if you've trusted in Jesus, are that temple. Ephesians 4.22 says, In him, you also, those who trust in Jesus, who have faith in him, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you not know that you are the temple of the living God? Sanctified to belong to him forever. Therefore, be holy as God who's loved you and saved you and purified you is holy. I'm wondering this morning if you hunger and thirst for holiness. If you hunger and thirst for the goodness and righteousness of a holy God, who is king and who loves you enough to cleanse you of your sin by his own sacrifice on the cross. That's who Jesus is. And you're not going to find the purity and the goodness and the, the righteousness and the holiness that you long for anywhere else but in Jesus. I know you know what sin tastes like. There's something so much better than that found in being purified to belong to this Jesus forever. And if you trust in him, you are pure. Don't let the accuser, let those burdens and the guilt of all that you've done, maybe even today, stay on your shoulders. Turn from it. And instead, take refuge in the cleansing blood of Jesus who willingly purifies you to belong to him. You are no longer sinner. You are holy. You are no longer enemy of God. You are beloved child adopted to belong forever to this God in relationship. Christ City, Palm Sunday teaches us that Jesus is king. And we know from the rest of scripture that he will return and that every enemy will be placed beneath his feet. So don't delay in submitting to him. Today is the day of salvation. Come to him. He is humble, he is compassionate, and he is holy. So joyfully join the crowds with sincerity and lay your cloaks down before him and your lives before him and receive the salvation that he offers and rejoice in the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? 
Jesus, we, we come before you and we bow low. You are the king, the only king who is worthy of our allegiance in worship. God, I pray that, that whatever truth has come from your word this morning, that it would penetrate our hearts, that we would not be able to escape the majesty and magnetic, attractive power of Jesus as the good Savior King. Lord, I pray you do a work in each of our hearts in helping us to rejoice in taking refuge in Jesus, to take refuge in his humility. He loves us and serves us. His compassion, he cares for us even in our rejection of him and his holiness. He's able to do something about the pollution in our hearts that no one else and nothing else can do. God, we ask that you would save the lost and encourage and sanctify your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.